host Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin Josh. Josh, say hi. I have uh, I have a new segment I want to introduce here that I mentioned to you on the dock here. You will uh, never just say oh, hi, will you? Ever once? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's my shtick. I think going forward, okay. just like I won't do it. I refuse. Okay. So as as the audience knows, we love Matthew McConaughey here. You know, he's uh, maybe the patron saint of the pod. And um, I've been reading his book, Green Lights, uh, because I was giving it to him on my birthday. And he writes poems throughout the book. Mm. Um, so I thought I could maybe read a poem to like really get us in a mindset of like, wow, let's be awesome. Yeah, I think that's great for the cast. I love that energy. Let's hear it. Um, let me just find it. This one is... Uh, Dude, come on. You can't fumble it when you're... <laughs> First day of the I'm editing that. It's fine. It's fine. This one is titled Cool. Cool. Cool is a natural law. If it was cool for that time, then it is cool for all time. A fad is just a branch on a cool's trunk. A fashionable flank whose 15 minutes can never abide. No matter how long she tends to try, cool stands the test of time. Because cool never tries. Cool just is. Matthew mm. McConaughey. Deeply poetic, deeply poetic. You know, I'm going to have to disagree after watching uh, Caddyshack that not all things stay cool over time. <laughs> okay, I, we won't get into it, but like, I need, I watched this movie and I, and then I texted you and you're like, that eh, wasn't that funny. And I was like, well, why did you make us pick a movie or watch a movie that you thought was funny? But then you're like, this movie stinks. Oh, I mean, that's, that's a totally fair question. Um, coming from the I guy mean, who... Know. Who chose Texas Chainsaw Next Generation? I find it a little bit hypocritical, but you know I'm willing to look past that because I love you. Um, I think I chose this for two two reasons probably. One because I'd never seen it, and somebody had mentioned it and told me it was funny. Um, and then my second thing is probably that I have no relationship to these movies of this era, and we can get into this later or now. Um, and grow up with '80s comedies in the house, like Rodney Dangerfield wasn't a thing, Bill Murray wasn't a thing, Chevy Chase wasn't a thing. Maybe a little bit of Eddie Murphy, John Candy. Um, but like, it's kind of an era of movie making that I have no relationship to. And I don't think has really aged that well. So I'm trying to find the funny, I guess, was my goal. Um, yeah, we can get into that more later. Yeah, so I guess we'll get into it. Like, I've never seen this movie beforehand either. I have like more of a history than you. Um, where in my junior year of college, we had this random roommate from Connecticut uh, who was actually worked at a golf course during summers. And one night I came out because it was just me and him in the living room. And he's watching Caddyshack. And I'm like, oh, Caddyshack, huh? I haven't seen this. I've heard this is great. And I'm sitting there and I watch the first 15 minutes. And I'm like, this movie sucks. <laughs> this is so boring. Like, he's just he's just biking around be like, eh, I'm Danny Newton. It's like, this stinks. And I was like, I'm just going to go. And I probably just read 112263 in my bed. Oh, okay. It's a good book. I like that book. Yeah, I also think, and I kind of want to address this too, we can kind of get right into it right here. You and I started watching movies like Reservoir Dogs, The Warriors, like Heat, things that were far past our capacity, very young age. So like when presented with things like The Waterboy or like Happy Gilmore or this, like I found it, you know, it, we're, we were not normal eight to 10 year old boys, right? Like we didn't, so I, it, I found a hard time getting a genuine laugh out of any of those kind of movies. I don't want to sound like pretentious here, but we were like 30 year old men in like 15 year old bodies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like our tastes were so like, man, I want like some seventies hard, like 
noir crime boil stuff that I can really like kind of dig my teeth into and be like, that's cool. But like, is there anything cool about the eighties comedies kind of besides just like, ah, we're busting. I've never seen ghostbusters. I've tried it. And I'm like, this stinks. I don't know if all of them have aged well, but they most certainly sent set the template for a lot of stuff that comes afterwards. Right. The, the, the mashing of genres is huge in this decade. And I think we'll get into that later. Um, during the time to me, um, a reflection of escapism of like kind of the Reagan humdrum monochrome lifestyle of just like kind of go to work any second. (laughs) Yeah. Go to work, eat a microwave dinner, go, go to sleep, repeat. You know what I mean? Um, Like leisure wasn't a huge thing. So I feel like a lot of these movies are about escapism and kind of sticking it to the man, uh, which is like a, a, a prevalent theme, no matter the time period. Right. But I don't know. I, I think that is kind of what they're saying more so than being funny. Um, but, you know, then again, there are some good ones. I really think The Breakfast Club is a good movie. I don't know if that's fully a comedy. No. It's well, a trash take. I mean, come on. I'll throw that in the breakfast garbage. You don't like Breakfast Club? No, I watched it. Um, I wa- I've, seen, I've, I've seen, like, all the 80s, like, not all, I shouldn't say, but, like, Ferris Bueller, 16 mm-hmm. Candles, Breakfast Club. And I'm like, these all stink. Like, I don't think Breakfast I- Club stinks. <laughs> I think it's got heart and I'm appreciative of what it did for like the genre of teen movies, mm-hmm. but it itself is so boring of like, wow, Bender's really crazy, huh? Wow. Girl become hot. Wow. Crazy. You like golf. Do I like golf? What are we talking about? I'm asking you, do you like golf? Oh, what a change in topic. <laughs> did you, you know, the honor Caddyshack, did you do a little, before the show or <laughs> no but i did you know the past couple casts i've uh i've been sticking to water or tea or zevia for the caddyshack podcast i did pick up some course light i figured you know there needs to be at least a, a little a little better living through chemistry if we're talking about this movie it's josh for the and caddyshack is what really gets you just like i'm i'm going in i'm just throwing I'm... it back yep Exactly. I think Josh Pretty was whiskey, though, so I, I haven't listened to that podcast. I'm kind of scared. Well, too. it showed. <laughs> <laughs> to answer your question, do I like golf? No. Yeah, no. Um, and I think it's – and, like, I think there's only a couple golf movies, right? And I think that's for a reason. It's a sport where you have to have money to play it, though – Anybody who is the lead is going to be kind of unrelatable for the, you know, general consensus of America or whoever's watching the film. So I think that kind of sets it apart. It's a pretentious sport. Like we're grown men wear Nike button ups and <laughs> ugly like track shoes on a course with flannel short or flat plaid shorts or flannel shorts. So I found the perspective of Danny refreshing, but he's just a dog shit character, which we'll get into much later. <laughs> It's weird, though, because, like, at least on my side of the family, there's a lot of golf. Like, I can't go to a family event without someone talking to me, like, what'd you do with me this week? Mm-hmm. No, my par was 68, and that's worse than last week. And I'm just like, why do you, like, who bothers with this? Like, my high school had a golf team. All my friends, or most of my friends that were, like, popular were like, the golf stuff. And I was like, this sucks. Like, you guys mm-hmm. just sit here, you just walk around. It's just a walking exercise, really. I don't I don't get the appeal either. Um I'll I'll always take an excuse to be outside. I think that part's fun. 
Um, but I'll just keep score. I don't want to have to do the swinging and the stuff like that. I went with yeah. my friends one time in high school to a golf course, and uh, I just drove the golf cart. That was that was my highlight of the day. See, I was the caddy. I feel like <laughs> you're like I'm Danny Newton. They're like what? <laughs> It's weird though, because like a GTA Five, I would go and play golf sometimes if I was like bored. But I in in life, like, look, I'll be honest with the audience here, I'm not good at golf. I've tried, you know. Like at my grandparents' house, they had this little thing on a tee that was like you. It wouldn't go anywhere. You just hit it and practice your swing. Never made contact. Never. I'm I'm gonna go on a whim here, and I don't want to call you out on the podcast, but anything that involves swinging something, you're not very good at. I've seen you play baseball. You're trash. <laughs> I've seen you play <laughs> wiffle ball at the beach. It's a beautiful sight, but you know, not a lot of contact is made. Yeah, no, and like we'll get into this later, but like our family is very much of like, if I'm not good at this thing, I hate it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I if you bring it up, I resent you for it. And if you try and make me to play, I will be—I will do it because I love you. But I will be miserable, and I will let you know every single second of it. And I quit. Josh, speaking of cocaine, try and explain the plot of this movie in sixty seconds. I like how I have to explain the plot of the movie that you chose, but okay. Um, <laughs> you got a timer? Um, hold on a second. Edit all this out. Wow, but he yeah. comes at me, and he's not even strapped. He, <laughs> wow. It's just not even scrapped. <laughs> not even scrapped. Hold on, let me close out my YouTube. All right. Oh my God. This, is like, this is like coming at Omar, and Omar's just like, well, "Are we gonna fight?" And you're like, "Yeah, I got a paper airplane." Right. I do have a timer. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. On the clock. We meet young boy Danny Noonan. He's a caddy at a premier golf course in his little state of Illinois. I don't know where he is. Um, Danny's in an Irish cat. This isn't important. Uh, he meets Ty Webb at the golf course. He's his caddy, and Ty Webb's really cool and affluent and awesome. Uh, we also meet Judge Smales, who's kind of a you know ignoramus and a real dink. Uh, long story short, the new guy named Al Servit comes in, causes all sort of problems for Judge Smales. Eventually, they go Three into seconds. a rivalry. Thirty? Okay. Um, there becomes a big golf tournament at the very end, which is just really stupid, where Ty, Judge Smales, and Al Servit get into a golf off. Uh, Danny fills in. Nicks is the chance at a college scholarship for a bunch of money. Hits the game when he's shot because of an explosion because Bill Murray is also there for some reason, but the plot lines never really intersect. It's really stupid. <laughs> um, Danny wins the money, walks off the course completely unchanged, despite a 90-minute film just happening, completely unchanged, and the movie ends. We're done, my friend. Wow, that was pretty good. That was actually relatively <laughs> accurate, which is sad. But, yeah, you, you pretty much nailed it right there. Yeah, I mean, like, there's not much to this movie, honestly. If you really think about it, you're just like, well, there's no, like, man, what are they trying to say about, like, the socioeconomic system here? It's just like, what do you say, golf what balls? They, what are they trying to say about the sexuality of man through golf? <laughs> what is Danny's hat signifying here? Yeah, what is that logo? Um, But, you know, there might not be a lot of meat and potatoes to this movie, but there's most certainly some meat and potatoes to discuss about making it, uh, which we will hop into right uh, this film was inspired by Brian Doyle Murray and Harold Ramis's memories of working as caddies in high school. Uh, many of the characters in the film that they encounter are influenced by various experiences. Uh, Maggie is based off of somebody that Harold, Harold Ramis knew, um, and the Haverkamps are based off of somebody that Brian Doyle Mur Murray, who is also the brother of Bill Murray, knew as well. Uh, the scene in which Al Cervic hits Judge Smales in the genitals with a golf ball happened to Ramis. 
Any thoughts on that, Josh? So I got I got a couple. All right. So yeah. I read this, and when you brought up Maggie, I really wanted to know, like, did this person they actually knew also have an awful Irish accent? But she's like, yeah. Hey, in the morning, Tony. I'm going golfing. There's, but the thing that like really throws me off with her accent is there are also moments where it kind of dips into this like Jamaican patois accent that just like, doesn't work at all. And she's just like kind of going in and out of Jamaican Irish. I, I didn't get that at all. Yeah. A weird choice. Honey, mom, I'm pregnant. <laughs> Brian Doyle, Murray, Ramos, and Kenny, Douglas Kenny, who we'll get into later, uh, turned in an original draft of the screenplay that was 200 plus pages. Mark Canton, who was the executive producer in charge at Orion, said, I just started working for John Peters, and Caddyshack was the first thing that came along. The script was probably about 200 pages, and my job was to help take this overly large but brilliant document, bold statement, and turn it into a 100-page screenplay. It looked like a novel. Bad one. <laughs> yeah, I I guess my, my confusion on that is, like, who would look at this script and be like, oh, man, this is genius. This is brilliant. Like, you know you're making a schlocky comedy movie with your friends at, at a golf course. Like, let's not act like you're making Citizen Kane over here. Yeah. Well, also, like, there's no way 90% of the best jokes, if there's even a best joke, aren't improvised. Like, there's mm. no way that's in the script. Um, right. It's kind of weird, though, if you think about this movie, is that there is a path where you can see this easily sliding into just by the plot vaguely of like the coming of age summer movie of like young boy goes through the crucible of adulthood, comes out the other end change and has the decision about what it's to do with his future. I think movies like the way, way back all set in kind of one location adventure land kind of fits in here a lot where mm -hmm. it's about this one location. How do these people change throughout this one summer? The most important summer of your life, arguably, but it's not, <laughs> it's not any of that. Right. And I'm not sure that it was aspiring to be, but like a character, like Danny, who was so like flamboyant and just kind of does a lot of bad things, like in the like in the sense that he is flamboyant and being a jerk, right? He flirts with other women and yeah, yeah. openly in front of his girlfriend. Like he doesn't change throughout the movie. He kind of shanks on a deal that he made. Like he's not a good person, and and he's quite open about it. Whereas like almost all those like great ones of the coming of age, the character we're almost like seeing the world through their eyes, right? We're a spectator in their life where they don't have a lot to say or do. It's more just kind of participating in life with them, which is the, the best way to approach that kind of material, which does not happen here. <laughs> um, Harold Ramis. Uh, Harold Ramis had acted in Second City Television in Stripes, written films such as Meatball and Animal House, so he was kind of in this crew of, of, of the 80s frat pack kind of group. Um, he had never directed and has admitted since then. Uh, this, he essentially had no idea what he was doing while directing this movie. I would venture to say that it shows. I would even venture to say I would stake my life on it. Like, there's yeah. no, like, shot composition where I'm like, whoa, that no. is some next-level stuff. Yeah, and, like, the beginning shots where it shows just the exterior of Danny's house, and it cuts to the hallway of Danny's house, and then it moves to Danny's room, and then it moves to the bathroom, and then we move to the kitchen. Like, it's just so static and boring and just by the numbers. <laughs> I think the scene where Danny's biking to town or through town. I think that's pretty well done. Cause that, I think that's a crane shot. Yeah. It's all mostly one take. And I'm like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. But otherwise it's just like, it's a lot like clerks in a, in a way of just like, mm. here are our characters. Here's where they're going. Here's where we are. Yeah. Go. <laughs> exactly. Here's your Mark. Hit it. Yeah. 
Um, this kind of explains what you were talking about earlier. The initial script, the initial script had focused on Danny Newton, Newton and his friends. Jeez, I can't speak today. As they prepare to go to college, uh, this was abandoned in the first week of shooting. And yeah, much of the dialogue, <laughs> much of the dialogue and whole scenes were improvised by the actors. Um, a lot of SNL alum in this: Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, two of the most prominent. Um, but I think that some of the other people had written on the show. Not positive. Don't quote me on that. Um, so a lot of improvisation and kind of going with the flow and riffing with each other comedy was here. You would think that Bill Murray and Chevy Chase would uh, be friends and kind of, oh, this would be a good collaborative space, seeing as how they worked on SNL together. No, 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 not at all. Uh, these two had a long-standing feud. I didn't put a lot of the stuff in here because it got quite dirty and personal as far as marriages and things like that. Wow, um, but wait, when... what? Yeah, I left it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you no, you read... don't have to. You, I, I, don't, I don't want all of it, but you're saying like comments some were made. Happened? Oh, I'm not, I don't think I'm not sure if it was that. Just some comments were made, okay. and things got a little out of hand. Um, no, but no, no, you got a little out of order yourself. <laughs> got a little out of order yourself. Who would you take in a fight, Bill Murray or Trevor Chase? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah. Thought of that. See, it's tough because, like, I think Bill Murray. If Carl is like a, a part of Bill Murray. I think Bill Murray has murdered people. Or he could. And Carl has murdered people. He, sure, but I'm saying if, if Carl is a part of him, right? Like, right. if that's something he walked into his head or is capable of tapping into, right. I think he could he could depose a body pretty quickly. You know, okay. he'd be like, yeah, so we uh, we cut the body pieces in parts and then we, uh, <laughs> we just bury it in the mud there and let it sink in the mud. Um, that was a pretty good Bill Murray. Actually, like Carl, thank you. <laughs> but Chevy Chase, I, I, I don't know. He's got like a wiliness to him, of like mm. I know he definitely knows some mobsters. Yes, yeah, he might not kill you, but he knows somebody who will do it for him. <laughs> yeah, like, like there's no way these, this fella doesn't like have some connections because like you don't get coke out of nowhere. It doesn't just fall from the sky like snow. It doesn't it? Doesn't. <laughs> I. I guess I'd pick Bill Murray. I don't know, because I feel like I like Bill Murray, too, more, because he's less problematic of a person. So, like, let's have a good time killing someone, I guess. Or is it killing someone, or I'm getting killed? What do you mean? Like, am I, is Bill Murray helping me kill someone? Oh, I said, who would you take in a fight, Bill Murray or Chevy Chase? Oh, oh. Yeah, it'd probably uh, Bill Murray. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with it. He probably is like a shank with his, like, boot. That whole segment is going to need some heavy editing right there. <laughs> this movie helped Bill Murray and Chevy Chase put aside their long-standing feud from their SNL days. There's a famous story that Bill Murray and Chevy Chase fought in John Belushi's dressing room. Uh, this was in 1978 because Chase crossed Murray when he returned to the show. I just put cocaine next to that. <laughs> just the absolute paranoia of cocaine right there. I feel like you could just say, like, cocaine to anything in this movie. Like, hey, why is that line this cocaine? Why is this yeah. shot this cocaine? Um, they remain professional on set, however. This is the only film that they've ever been on screen together in. It's one scene, and it might be the only funny scene in this movie. Is it? I wanted to ask you that, because when you wrote that, I, wa I, I watched this scene, and I was like, no, oh, this is that funny. I like the bit where they kind of go back and forth, and Chevy Chase is like, yeah, we've got a pond out back. That would be great for you. And then Carl's like, oh, yeah, yeah, a pond. A pool would be nice, too. You know, like, I thought that bit was kind of funny. The way that he was talking about how he made his own grass and stuff like that. You know, there was there some good bits in there. It's just so convoluted, like how they had to write it in of like, man, our big actors are never on stage or on screen together. What's what if ties out late one night randomly for no reason in the script, and he's he, this notorious great golfer 
somehow shoots a ball into Bill Murray's like hut, and then they talk, and like they know each other, but we've never seen them talk beforehand. It's just mm-hmm. like, no, man, they're, they're bros. They're best friends. Uh, I don't know. I just think that scene was kind of funny in a movie that was lacking a lot of them. This film was shot over 11 weeks during autumn of 1979. Hurricane David, one of the deadliest hurricanes of all time, and I believe the most deadly hurricane in Haiti of all time, uh, delayed production. Golf scenes were filmed at the Rolling Hills Golf Club in Davie, Florida. Uh, According to Ramis, Rolling Hills was chosen because the course did not have any palm trees. He wanted the the film to feel like it was in the Midwest, not Florida, which I push back on because that entire beach scene looks like it is shot in the port of Miami. Quote unquote beach scene <laughs> where Rodney Dangerfield yeah, like, commandeers a yacht. <laughs> it's like if this is supposed to be like Illinois or something, like it should be a lake, not like mm-hmm. the ocean, you know? Like they're literally uh, skyscrapers in the background of those shots. <laughs> it's tough because it's just like you couldn't find a, a golf course in the Midwest. You got like 10 states there, you got the whole midsection of the country. Couldn't find one that fitted your bill. <laughs> like, come on, Harold. Just don't sell me that bag of balls. Yeah, don't sell us that bag of balls, Harold. We're not going to buy it. At least the scouting team needs to be fired. Or You know what? They should all be lined up and just fucking pegged with golf balls from the short distance. Whoa, 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 wait. <laughs> I thought you were going to like with Nuremberg, and I was like, oh, my God. No, I don't like this movie no. either, but like half of them shot. Jesus Christ. No, no, Jesus, oh, no way. Um, moving on. Murray improvised much of the Cinderella story scene based on two lines of stage direction. Ramis gave him the direction to act as a child, which he does throughout this whole movie. I don't really think he needs stage direction for that. Uh, Murray hit Murray hit the flowers as if they were a whip and fantasized aloud about winning the U.S. Masters. I also like this scene, too. I, I found this scene kind of funny. I don't know. I like Carl, and I don't get the murderous vibes that you do, but we'll get into that later. I'll make a hard push for that because there's okay. no way this man hasn't or will not kill someone during his lifetime. Josh, you ever seen the movie Star Wars? Franchise? You know, I have. I have, regrettably. There's a, there's a, there's a fellow named John Dykstra who's a special effects pioneer. Uh, he worked on Star Wars, the integration of computers and filmmaking, puppeteering. Uh, he was hired to do the special effects for this movie. I'm not quite sure what was special about these effects, but... Uh, it's, it's the lightning. <laughs> oh, God. It's the terrible so... lightning, which is just so bad. Yes, I have that in my notes, actually. <laughs> uh, the gopher in this film was given hydraulics for ears and body movement while puppeteer Pat Brimer, RIP to a road dog, Operated the doll. The work also includes CGI lighting. It is John Dykstra. Okay. Um, if you want to call I wanted it to. I wanted to say something here while we're on the technical aspect of this. Whoever did the sound mixing on this movie. Oh my God, Josh. Thank you. Yes. It's so bad. The scene where Danny and like Ty Webb are talking in the first two minutes. I had to rewind it on my laptop three times while I had headphones in. And like, as you watch films more and like we do this it's like the two things in film that should be seamless and can absolutely puncture and like permeate into your system and you won't even realize it are sound and editing like they're supposed to be almost like omnipresent they're not really supposed to realize they're there it is so obvious when sound is crap or like the editing is crap and there are so many instances in this movie where i was like Dude, who was like who was gaffing this thing? Like this is absolutely terrible. Like it is incomprehensible what those two are saying as they walk towards on the Z axis towards the camera. 
everything sounds like it's ADR, but like the worst offense is the like the incorporation of music. Like when hmm. Alex Trebek's on the golf course and it's his first scene and he's got like the the RCM radio or whatever pop out of his bag and he's yeah. just dancing. You could like you could just tell me someone just like played the music over like the film while they were in the editing studio and that's how that got in. And I'd be like, I mean, yeah, it sounds like it. It doesn't sound like it's in the movie. It's just like the characters listening to it. It's awful. Like at least it's all right. Is like in like the, the it's just clear it's a soundtrack. Right. They use music in this movie, and it's just like. Like it's like the heat scene where where Vincent Hannah's in the club, and you're like, mm. oh, they added that music in post because there's no 100%. way to go to that. Yeah, it's so bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not only that, um, I would be a liar if I didn't say that that Kenny Kenny Loggins song "It's All Right" didn't get stuck in my head a little bit. <laughs> you know, I had this thought: if like if Trent Reznor and Johnny Greenwood had like paved the way earlier, <laughs> Kenny Loggins just should have done scores because like he's really good at it. Between this and Top Gun, like. <laughs> two bangers <laughs> the production crew of this film did not get the proper permissions for the explosion at the climax of the film kind of a big no-no to do uh, especially when safety on set is the number one priority a pilot reported to the Fort Lauderdale airport who thought that a plane had crashed wow if that doesn't just begin to touch on the debauchery of this movie I don't know what does I have so many questions about this Like, so if you're a resident here or you're like you're, you're driving by right and all of a sudden <laughs> you see the golf course explode are you like oh my god is everyone dead but like they're just like no nah, like what did they tell the, the owners of the club that they were gonna just destroy it or like i have no idea the i'm not gonna try and answer that question with facts i'm just gonna spin it and be funny my thing would be like driving by seeing that explosion and then Bill Murray pop his head up out of the ground as you're on the phone with the 911 dispatcher and just be like, uh, I think Bill Murray just popped out of the ground where the explosion just happened. I think Bill Murray's a member of Al-Qaeda. I think <laughs> we need to get him on a most wanted list there, gays. Were they around back then? Were they, were, were they hitting it hard back then? You know, I'm sure a version of them were, but imagine if Bill Murray's still in character. <laughs> tomato, like, tomato. Yes, uh, I'm, I just blew up the golf course for the film. I'm just having a fun time. I'm just trying to get the golfer. You'd be like, lock this guy up. <laughs> Full Methodist <laughs> Carl. How how many minutes into the movie did you get sick of Carl's mouth positioning? About two. Took me about 15. Yeah, it took me oh, 15. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> I got through the first scene, and I was like, why is he doing Like, I get why, but like, God, just make it stop. Uh, it's heavily documented that this set was just one giant party. Absolutely debauchery everywhere. Um, so much so that Chris Nashtaway released a book in 2018 called Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. This talks about a lot of the stuff on set. Um, Mike, Michael O'Keefe, Danny O'Noonan in the movie, is quoted as saying, cocaine was driving everyone. It would be lunch, and some would say, do you want a line? Yeah, sure. It was no big deal. This was the 70s. Which is hilarious because they filmed this in 1979. It was released in 1980, Michael O'Keefe. Um, I'm pretty sure the 70s were pretty much over. <laughs> Yeah, we gotten out of that stage, and like the crack pandemic is in full swing, and they're just like, yeah, yeah I mean, it's just a blow. Like we're just doing a line, and the mm -hmm. funniest part is like Michael O'Keefe can't be more than what, like twenty two, yes. in this movie, <laughs> maybe. And he's yeah. just like, yeah, I just did a line for like my birthday on the when I turned twenty one. It's cool. Also, somebody who I had to look up because I forgot he was in a lot of things that I've seen before. 
You know what I mean? And is like played like a dad in a lot of things. You know, just weird to see him. Like he was a dad and leave it to Beaver, I believe. It's just strange to read these quotes and know that Michael O'Keefe was out here slanging that dope in 1979. It's <laughs> like um, the guy who played Elliot in E.T. It's like, yeah, he played Danny or Jack Torrance in like the Doctor Sleep and like all this other stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, like these people don't stay children. They actually want to work the rest of their life. <laughs> But like I just can't I can't imagine like imagine if you're at your workplace right you're just mm-hmm. walking around you're like doing your rounds or whatever you got to do at your work for the listener and someone's just like oh hey man in the lunch break I, I'm gonna do a lot of coke you want in and you're like yeah come on <laughs> like how many other venues is that acceptable besides like a drug kingpin and film I really think that those are the two the only two. <laughs> terms of employment where that's acceptable in the workplace i think you'd get you'd catch an hr complaint pretty quick if you just whipped out a little bit of cocaine and snorted it off the table what dude it's lunch it's the 70s dude, i need it okay god have you seen brenda and financing Yeesh. okay nah this is medicinal it's uh, medicinal coke Peter Burkrot, who plays Caddy Angie Dionunzu, was quoted as saying, I had never seen cocaine before. I got to the set of Caddyshack, but the sight of coke was hard to ignore. And as the shoot went on, recreational recreational use that started by the gram turned into binges indulged by the ounce. Seemed to be the fuel that kept the film running. Uh, I just really like the way that... I really like the way that Peter worded that sentence. Recreational use that started by the gram turned into binges indulged by the ounce. Just really poetic. I mean, a great wordsmith, no Matthew McConaughey for sure. Um, but it Close is kind of like, <laughs> but it is just crazy that he's just like, yeah, I mean, the whole film was fueled by Coke. Like, like he's not like saying like it was crazy. He just like, yeah, I mean, eventually it was just hard to ignore, you know, like it just is what it is. It's like, well, you know, I don't know about that, Mr. Mr. Peter, but. Yeah. And also hindsight 2020, I feel like this was the golden era of ignoring all of your problems in suppression of like any emotions from males. So like, I'm sure a lot of these guys were really hurting inside. <laughs> like there's a reason that you are so broken inside that you have to do cocaine on a film set. I don't think that that stays fun for long. You know what I mean? It's just like, I'm trying to imagine what it must've been like to just walk around like on set and you're just like, I imagine they still had people from the actual golf course there. So, like, imagine that person just, like, in the showers, and you just see Bill Murray just doing a rail. Chopping up a fat line, yeah. With his little camo, like, hat on, and he's just like, hey, man, what's up? I'm Bill Murray. He's just, like... Already in character. Uh, And speaking of some of that darker stuff and people hurting, Doug Kenny, famous National Lampoon Magazine co-founder, co-writer, actor in Caddyshack. Uh, I guess you could call him an actor in Caddyshack. He can be seen at one point in the movie looking around, chopping up a line of cocaine. Uh, offering it to the actress next to him right before the film cuts as she snorts. Shortly after the film wrapped, Kenny traveled to Hawaii with Chevy Chase to help him sober up sober up, and refine himself mentally. Unfortunately, Chevy was the only one who came back. Circumstances around Doug's death are kind of speculative. Uh, it's, some people think he might have fell, quote-unquote, um, but I think the people who know him closely think that he probably took his own life. So this forced Michael O'Keefe to get sober, um, and I think that this was kind of the beginning of some of the realizations that this stuff was not fun anymore. Yeah, like, you know, we just made that joke about, like, you don't do coke because, like, everything's hunky-dory. And this kind of is the embodiment of it, of, like, 
a lot of these drugs are masking what's going on with your personal life, whether it be mental, physical, relationship, whatever it is. You know, it's a coping mechanism. Um, and unfortunately, it was one that claimed Kenny's life, honestly. And, like, I know he was really crestfallen when Caddyshack initially wasn't, like, a huge hit. Um, and that's partially why he went to Hawaii, just to get away from it all and try and, like, get to a new place with himself. And, you know, glad that the people who like his material, you know, I'm not particularly one of them, no offense. Right. But I'm glad they have this and his family members can go back and see, like, this is how this person acted. This is who he was. You know, he left some money behind to his genius. So, uh, you know, you know, at least there's that, you know, but. Yeah. And in a time, too, where options were limited and magazines meant something, too, right? There was a poetic genius to being able to write jokes, right? It wasn't just, hey, check out my YouTube channel and watch these five minutes of me doing crowd work. Like, that was an intimate thing where you sat down in a room and you came up with a joke. So. Yeah, it's just a completely different era of comedic writing, and I think that that's probably why we have such a disconnect with this movie. I mean, but to your point, though, of, like, unfortunately, he was one of the first people where it was, like, a wake-up call, like you said, to all these actors. It's like the third third act of Goodfellas, or, like, this isn't just fun. Like, eventually, there's a cost to this. At the ride stop. you got to figure out if you want to pay that cost, because eventually, you're going to have to if you don't shape up. And It is, and, like, you know, we could do a whole podcast of people that we've lost way too soon like that who are immensely talented. It's just kind of a, it's kind of a shame. Um, Ted Knight, who played Judge Smales, go figure, found the set unprofessional and did, mar- did not partake in the party hard schedule Murray, Chase, and Dangerfield had accumulated. Um, I'm going to put this question here, Josh. I got another one for you. You have to go out for a night party with one of them, Murray, Chase, or Dangerfield. Who do you pick and do you survive the night? So I want to go through my three candidates here, my three bows potentially. Um, Bill Murray, you know, I think we could get along. You know, if he's not doing like line after line, I think we could have a fun time. I was gonna say this is a point where I just would like to interject here real quick. It's not, it's not about who you're going to relate with. It's, I mean, let's let's give the audience a little backstory around you or backstory for you real quick. You are straight edge. You don't you don't smoke. You don't drink. You're a straight edge guy. So you know, one drink, you're gonna be loosey goosey, man. So I I don't care about you making a personal connection. Who do you think you're making at home with all your clothes on or alive with? I think it's Dangerfield because he's too old to take the risk. Like he's got to worry about heart failure if he does too much coke. You know, like I don't think he did. <laughs> well, <laughs> the guy's like we're young, we're invincible, but Roddy Dangerfield's got to be what like fifty five, and he looks eighty. So yeah, like I gotta, <laughs> I gotta imagine he might be old enough to realize like he can't do this all the time. Um, I'd probably get really annoyed with him though, and eventually be like, "This guy sucks." <laughs> Which is something we'll get into, but like, I I think I trust him the most because he maybe is the wealthiest, so he's got the money to take care of me. Okay, that's fair. Number two, he's just the oldest. Okay, uh, I'm gonna take Chevy Chase for the good time. Um, you, you... <laughs> I'm trying to party hard. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. You're going to wake up in a sewer and be like, well, we had a crazy, oh, wait, I don't remember any of it because I did so much drugs. (laughs) The original cut of this movie was four hours long. Uh, Orion Pictures, already displeased with the film itself, forced editor William Carruth and the creative team behind the film to rely on loose vignettes of Dangerfield, Murray, and Chase's improv skills to formulate a movie around. And this is Caddyshack. (laughs) There's There's no story here. Um, one of the things that I heard about this movie a lot is like, it's not a great film, but it's a really fun movie. And like, yeah, but like, 
That's it. I, I, <laughs> well, that, but like, I don't want to sit here and be a snob and declare that that's true for everything of like, you have to be a film to be enjoyable. But I want to have something different. I want to have like something tangible of like a movie that's not just comprised of Coke. The motivation of this movie compared to like the other movies we talked about of like Goodfellas, Memories of Murder, Jackie Brown, those all remained all the way through script to post production to release. The motivations of making this movie got completely lost. What do we, you know, a weekend? <laughs> yeah. Like, I understand that, you know. It's not easy to write 200 pages of anything. And I wasn't trying to, like, besmirch that, like, movie, this movie when I said, oh, you know, 200 pages. They're not trying to make Citizen Kane. Like, people work very hard to write things, and people work very hard to get things made. But, like, I don't know. Like you said, like, wouldn't you kind of realize, like, a week in that this is just, like, not working? Like, <laughs> that we're just literally relying on comedic talent, and there's no real through line? And then, oh, yeah, we should probably get some scenes with Danny. Oh, is that cocaine over there? Hold on. <laughs> Man, like I'm looking at these these dailies, and oh my god, is that is that a line of coke? <laughs> Let's go! And then that problem completely goes out the window till tomorrow, and then it gets erased and flushed away again the next day. Yeah, we'll deal with it in post when we go to cut. <laughs> and that's how you get a four hour cut of of something that's not that good. My question for you that I wrote down in my notes, I wanted to save it to keep things spicy around here. Would you watch this four hour cut? I don't think I'd watch a two-hour cut of this movie, so no. See, I think of all the ways that I've wasted four hours in my life, in their various, in their degree of sadness. So I think that there's a lot worse things I've done for four hours than watch a four-hour cut of Caddyshack. I mean, you make a great point. I've been reading at least, I'm up to like page, let me find it for you real quick. I'm at page 120-something of the Matthew McConaughey book. <laughs> I read all 440 pages of Heat 2. I don't really have much ground to stand on here. My time. <laughs> so I, I guess like gun to my head, I'm not really having a problem with it, but it's just like, I don't know. I feel like if I don't like the first movie when like, this is the polished version. Yeah. You give me just the rough. I'm going to be like, still not funny. Still not entertaining. Still, still not funny. <laughs> I think it would almost be an exercise in fortitude to like make it through all four hours. <laughs> it's like, um, uh, God, what is it called? Um, the Orange Clock? God damn. Clockwork Orange? Yes. <laughs> orange Clock. Orange Clock, wow. You're going to want to edit that it's one like out. For the... <laughs> no, we leave our mistakes in because that's what Road Dog does. Um, oh, man. The Road Dog fans are going to eat you apart for that one. But, but it'd be like a Clockwork Orange where like, my eyes are glued to the screen and I'm like, yes, Caddyshack. <laughs> ah. Rodney a little Danger bit of the ultraviolence. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Remus's first choice for Danny was Mickey Rourke. <laughs> what a totally different movie. Just becomes instantly less funny when it's already not funny. Um, way too real of a person <clears throat> and, and an actor to be in this movie. I don't know. Strange well, there's choice. like a big, there's a big brother, little brother thing with Ty and Danny that I feel like you can't have with, with Rourke because he's already a personality. You mm. know, like Michael O'Keefe had been in things, but he's never been like, an adult, I, I at least I assume. I haven't looked at his filmography all the way through compared to Mickey Rourke's this time. But, like, I mean, Mickey Rourke always struck me as, like, an intense guy where it's just, like, I'm about yes. the craft, and that's it. Not only that, but, like, 
the thing with me with Mickey is like he would be more like a character in the Bad News Bears, like the boy who rides the motorcycle and smokes cigarettes and smashes bottles up against Carl Shedd. Like he would just be a jerk, right? So I don't feel he he wouldn't give Ty respect, and he wouldn't take like Judge Smales and his scholarship and going to school seriously. You know, you watch the Pope of Greenwich Village. Like, Mickey Rourke wouldn't give a shit about any of these guys. He would smack them in the mouth and think they're fools. He'd be more apt to hang out with Rodney Dangerfield and try and come up with some Ponzi scheme than he would to hang out with any of these rich, like, to-do-wells, to you know? You need Danny to be, like, a smarmy, likable scumbag who you relate to and does feel like a person you could see in your high school. He's and not. Mickey is not that. Yeah. Danny's not. Like, Danny is the worst character in this movie, I'll argue. <laughs> and he's the one we spend the most time with. Barely, it's not by much, but I want to talk about Danny later and maybe why he's the villain of this movie. But yeah, I mean, Danny's just like, like what a dick. I'll say it, just <laughs> just a complete dick. Like you just broke your big Phil streak. That no, I mean, I've I've already broke. I was at an end of show a couple weeks ago. I was like, oh, I broke it there. I, you know, we'll we'll see. Give me one each. Okay. Dangerfield, while big in the comedy circle and a regular on The Tonight Show at this point, had not been in a lot of movies. I looked this up. His only other two credits were like this movie called The Passenger, I believe. Probably wrong on that because I didn't really care. Um, and the other one is an uncredited role. So it's kind of interesting to think that wasn't world famous at this point and wasn't mimicked constantly. And I think that's our big problem, right? We grew up on the East Coast with probably four or five people who actually sound like Rodney Dangerfield. So it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to find this guy funny after 40 plus years of like imitation, you know? <laughs> it's just difficult. Ramus had wanted Don Rickles for the movie. This I would have liked to see. I find Don Rickles very funny. Uh, John Peters had this to say about Dangerfield. We brought him in. He came into the studio in a big black limo. He came into my office, took out a plastic bag, and did two lines of coke on my desk. Auditions in the 80s, folks. That's all you needed. That's all you needed to get casted things, fellas. You just <laughs> you just get some illegal drugs and you put them on a producer's desk and be like, what do you think? Oh, am like, I in or what? <laughs> you mentioned this form of imitation of like the movies that we watched that are imitating a lot of things that come from this era. And one of the things I've always thought about of why don't I connect with 80s films is that we are watching the predecessors of the successors, you know, mm. so the tropes that they invented or defined or redefined for their time from previous films, we've already seen them all. You know, we've seen them played out differently. We've seen them repeated, all these sort of things. For, so for us, it's not like a groundbreaking thing to go back and watch it because we don't have that scope. It's just another movie to us, you know, right. like. I'd seen movies before The Breakfast Club where teenagers are just normal people. And so when I saw The Breakfast Club, I was like, whoa, that's crazy. What a, what a new idea. So, like, I think there's a certain reverence you have to have for the history and the time frame where movies came out. But, like, I'll, I'll still say they suck. You know, like, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll respect right. what they did, but yikes. Yeah, and I think we've done a really good job on the show, even with movies like Hellraiser and Texas Chainsaw of, like, not full-out bashing them, I find it almost more difficult to not bash this movie than those. I don't know why that is, because horror and comedy are quite closely related. And I don't have an answer for that. Maybe I need to meditate on that, and that's a, like, conversation for another podcast. But I was watching this and being like, why am I giving Hellraiser and Texas Chainsaw, you know, like, I'm gonna go see Don't Worry Darling in a couple days. Like, why are all these movies getting a pass? But... Like, I hold, like, these to such a higher standard when they are not trying to do and operate on any other level. 
I think it's because in a lot of ways that there's more intent with those films, either they're good or bad. You know, Hellraiser 3, I think probably there's less intent, but Texas Chainsaw, as we kind of went through of like the pre-production process and the thought process, there's mm-hmm. a lot of like, here's what I want to say. They cared. And I'm not going to say the people in this movie didn't care, but they also didn't care. <laughs> well, I also don't think that they're really trying to say anything. No. Right, and when you produce a four-hour cut of like all jokes, and then you have to trim that down to a, an hour and a half cut, you're not, you're not really giving, you're not caring because like the sound mixing is awful, the ADR is bad, so many of the things that are technically wrong with this movie just care like, convenient, like, a lack of like care. I mean, I don't even know the way to say it, but it's just very amateurish. It's the most, it's the most amateurish movie I've ever seen that's like culturally revered. Yes, and I. I don't know if I said this earlier, but like when I was in the office today and I voiced the opinion to who recommended this movie of like, yeah, dude, I thought that was a pretty big stinker. I got a lot of pushback from all three people who I worked with. And they're like, you didn't find sequence A funny? And I was like, not really. And they're like, what about sequence B? I was like, not at all. <laughs> you know, it was like, then like they were like, oh man, Rodney Dangerfield, I mean, he was pretty great, right? I was like, none of his jokes have anything to do with the movie. They're so non sequitur and just like out of the blue. And then he does this odd Cosby spaz out dance at one point in the movie that I just absolutely hated. It was the worst part of the whole movie. I close my eyes and I still see it every once in a while. I'm just hoping that goes away within the next week when you pick a movie. <laughs> it's funny because the audience will hear my dad's thought on this movie and like... It's is... different. <laughs> They'll see, they'll hear his uh, Dangerfield impression. But like, when I first came to just before we recorded, I was like, yeah, that movie sucked. He's like, really? I was like, yeah. And the reason I feel like I didn't find it that funny or that amusing is that like, the more I age, the more I find myself increasingly amused by like conversational humor. You know, the nice guys, Clerks, Tarantino, those are large smiling friends. Conversations. Yes. They're funny because of the conversation the characters have and the clever dialogue. But this movie has a lot of setups and punchlines that don't work for me. Dangerfield doesn't move my needle. Chevy made me chuckle here and there, but he's mostly just weird. And Murray's whole thing is just like, I'm going to talk like this for an hour and 30 minutes. What was the reason for flying him back? Like his original sequence for this, Murray, was like six lines. And then they would like fly him back from New York while he was doing SNL to go shoot more. Why did you need to shoot more Bill Murray? Why? That doesn't Why is Carl in this movie? It's it's a decade of excess. That might be why, but I also think the same saying of it was the seventies or it was the times is the same reason these movies get to skate by. It's the nostalgia effect. Well, I watched this when I was a little kid with my dad, and he told me it was funny, so it's funny to me. Like if these are kind of like those movies that get passed down, and I have a couple of those too. I think The Great Outdoors is hilarious with John Candy. Some people might think that's just stupid physical comedy, right? Like it might just they they might think that's just nineteen eighties Three Stooges. But I find that movie hilarious, you know, um, Harry Crumb. Like, I, I like a lot of the John Candy movies, and those are because they were passed down to me, and they hold some nostalgic purpose. So I think that this is a decade that not only gets away with its bad behavior by saying it was the times, but also gets a pass on bad quality because they say it was the times. I have a much easier time ripping on this because I don't think the people who made it cared as much as I think a lot of other movies we've seen, seen and talked about have. I agree with you. I think you're 100% right. Um, kind of get, get back into the casting stuff here. We went on a little tangent. Ramis and co-wrote Ty Webb with Chevy Chase in mind. Ramis on Chase said, "We with any big movie, you need a million-dollar player, so that was Chevy. 
Murray was with the production for only six days, and his lines were largely, largely unscripted. Murray, I got into the movie because of my brother Brian. I think the real reason I got the part was that I was reasonably priced. <laughs> There's that great attitude of Bill Murray right there, leaking right through in that quote. Everybody else who I read about like had like kind of, you know, fond memories of this movie and had good quotes to pull from, and just all of his were grumpy, ornery. Like, <laughs> just, it, it's funny how, like, so much of these people are in their characters. Like, my web is essentially Chevy Chase. Like, yes. an eccentric weirdo who, like, has wry, wily, one-word sense of humor. You know, that's Chevy Chase in real life. You know, Bill Murray is an oddball eccentric who <laughs> apparently, according to you, is a murderer. But, like, wow. it's not like they're doing anything really stretching the abilities as far as acting in their as far as they're concerned, you know, like they're not doing anything new. The only reason I could think that Bill Murray had a miserable time despite all the drugs is that I think what he's really great at, like a lot of the actors in this movie is banter. And Carl doesn't have banter. It's a lot of monologues and wonders and ad libs and improvisations. So it's probably just like for him. I mean, I'm speculating here, but it's just like, yeah, let me think about a time that I carried an entire third of a movie by myself with right. no nothing like planned for me. So I mean he's also just Bill Murray. <laughs> and maybe he was just like my brother wrote this, I'll just join it. Yeah, and the thing too is I think you might be right in that in like the preparation and just kind of like disliking parts of that because I would venture to say that he's the best actor in this movie if you go by career and body of work. I think it's it's really not close as far as the decade decider we have this week. I think he kind of runs away with it. So that might be part of the reason why he didn't really have any good quotes to pull from. Um, I want you to read this last actor. one. He's a dynamic actor. He's great in Lost in Translation. He's great in Broken Flowers. Uh, I really like him in The Dead Don't Die, which I saw recently. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Jim Jarmusch guy. Tickles my fancy. Anything with Adam Driver, I'm there for, just because he's a dog. Sometimes listen, mean, a friend of the show, Adam Driver. Adam Driver speaking on about in a Caddyshack episode. Great pull. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Read this last one because this blew my mind. I didn't know this. So I was listening to, uh, I guess I'll shout. No, edit it out. No. Okay. Well, this is where I got this is where I got the, the info. A lie and say you didn't. Okay, I read this online that Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer was also considered for the role of Lacey, but she turned down the role because she didn't want to get naked because she read the script and saw Lacey gets naked. Completely different movie if it's if it's Mickey Rourke and Michelle Pfeiffer. Just because, like, I don't know if you could go back to this movie as much as you do because it's just like, oh, yeah, that's Mickey Rourke and Michelle Pfeiffer. Like, I think this movie benefits from just, like, no-namers or just, like, faceless people, I feel like, as the leads. Yeah. Um, and to speak on that, kind of, this is, uh, <clears throat> while we do try to have a lot of fun on this podcast and we keep it loose and, and, and like to make jokes, there are things that need to be talked about that are serious. Um, and to kind of the end that Josh talked about, getting naked on screen there's an incident that occurred on this movie that just really really was toxic uh john peters who is a pretty controversial figure and has kind of been uh has kind of become a caricature over the past couple of years as far as betrayal and licorice pizza and some other stuff um laughed and joked around about a situation where lacy and danny's sex scene was being filmed he brought in a playboy photographer and wanted him to do a naked shoot of her uh she refused Peters threatened her that she'd never work again, which is more or less true. 
Um, there was quite a few people like Michael O'Keefe and some others. I think Harold Ramis said something on set, um, but not enough people said something. And that was kind of the theme that I had about this movie. It's like, hey, maybe somebody should have said something about the rampant drug use. Maybe somebody should have said something about the toxic work environment and like the set not getting the proper clearance to blow up a goddamn golf course. Um, I think people are always obsessed with the work and forget that the number one important thing about a film set and the film set's culture is safety. And just hearing these stories about this movie, like I'm not trying to be some SJW riding my white horse to save everybody here, but like, I don't know. It's just kind of disgusting behavior. It's like, man, these guys were real dicks, like real, real, like, yeah. And I mean, the most distressing thing is like, this is just probably one of thousands of stories like this, Mm -hmm. you know, in the sense of like, before the Me Too era gave people the power and the feeling that they can finally out these people, if a head of a studio, which is what John Peters basically was at this time, said, you're not going to work again unless you do what I want, you probably aren't. That's just how it is. And that's how you create a lot of abuse and toxicity, like you mentioned. And it's a goddamn shame that it took so long for the people to be finally called out on their bullshit. I'll say it. Um, and, you know, like you said about John Peters... My first experience with him was in the Kevin Smith story in a DVD. Talks about Superman Lives. It's like, wow, what a funny character. Bradley Cooper plays him the same way in Licorice Pizza. Where it's like, wow, what a weirdo. But this dude right. is a real is a real prick. Yeah, um, he's a bad person. He, yep. No. Nope, and again, like I said, this isn't a podcast where we're kind of trying to, you know, get into political commentary. But like, some things need to be said. And like, John Peters was a a, a bad, manipulative person to actors and studio heads alike so two thumbs down on john peters not on the show john john you will never get an invite to the road dogs podcast so long as i live and produce the show with my good friend josh who edits the show friend i've been called the brother by you and i don't want him to know that we're related john peters wrote me back a bad email i would say to him oh fuck you man i take that john peters you fucking creep all right we're back Yes, sir. <laughs> Talking about Caddyshack. Caddyshack was a movie of my generation. So you saw it in theaters? I believe I did, yes. You have any memory from the theater experience? or? Uh, I think I saw it in the old Rochester Theater in downtown Rochester when I was probably about 13 or 14. Okay, so <laughs> no memory of like, wow, I remember seeing it with my friends. Just like, it was in this theater at this time, yes. No, I don't think I remember. I think I saw it by myself or with maybe <laughs> so my sister. My sister. Wait, so you saw it in the biggest comedy you're just by yourself? I think I was. Either my sister Linda took me, I'm not sure. Or, or Alan, <laughs> I can't remember for sure. Was the theater busy or? Um, yeah, I think at the time it was kind of a hit movie because Rodney Dangerfield was very popular back then. He was kind of a icon of comedy um so yeah i believe it was a pretty popular movie at the time <laughs> did you like it yeah i thought it was hilarious i thought rodney dangerfield jr was very uh funny i, I enjoyed his type of uh comedian approach to uh, uh humor well give us your best rodney dangerfield impression uh, i get no respect, uh, no respect. <laughs> take my wife <laughs> Take my wife. That was Henny Youngman, actually. Hey, that was Henny Youngman. Henny Youngman was a comedian, uh, probably in the sixties, maybe even the fifties, going way back. <laughs> he said his famous line was, "Take my wife, please." Huh? 
Okay. <laughs> Look him up. Look him up. He was quite an icon as himself. What did you like about Caddyshack? Uh, I just thought that the girl in there was pretty hot to be <laughs> Well, she was very attractive. Chevy Chase was another guy. was was a very he has that comedic humor where he like his facial expressions. Oh, he's funny. His mannerisms is, is is very funny. Even if he doesn't say anything, sometimes just the way he approaches uh, his his lines were very funny. His uh, comedic approach to his uh, expressions were hilarious. What else did you like about Caddyshack? Have you watched it since? I've seen it a couple times on HBO uh, in different times growing up, and I've seen it, I think, last time it was on TV. I think it was a few years ago, and I remember watching it again. Yeah, and I still found the, the lines very humorous and funny. And uh, <laughs> Why are you pronouncing it like that? What do you mean? Humorous. Well, I thought they were funny. Well, no, but you're saying like, there's a silent agent humor. Oh, well, I just, I thought it was a funny movie. Uh, it's a movie you can watch over and over again and appreciate. <laughs> That's the not what my point was. Well, then I don't understand your point. Say humor. Humor. Yeah, but you're, you have like a silent H. Well, that's sometimes how I talk. That's sometimes. So it fluctuates? I, on certain words, I evidently it must. Okay. Like hara, orange. You've never pronounced it hara before. You always said horror. Horror, hara, whatever. It's all the same thing. Okay. What would you do Caddyshack out of five stars? Uh, I would probably give it a three. Okay, that's not like... But you loved it, right? Yeah, I thought it was a funny movie. But but not a five, a three? No, I didn't give it a five. I don't think it was the best comedic movie I've ever seen. So what's the best comedic movie you've ever seen? I would say it would be a toss-up between something about Mary. Oh, my God. You didn't like that, I take it. Uh, or John Candy's uh, Uncle Buck was another funny movie. Okay, I'll allow that one. Yeah. Well, thank you for your, for your opinion on Caddyshack. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoy it and hope you get some uh, positive feedback. Any last words on, on the movie? Uh, it's not a duty. <laughs> Josh, talk about the box office for this movie. Talk about the box office um, for this movie, Josh. You know how people told us like the segues are kind of tough? Yeah. That's an instance of like a bad segue. <laughs> um, but shockingly, I don't know if you can believe it, but Caddyshack only had a $6 million budget. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and on that budget, it grossed $60 million, which is solid. It was the 17th highest total of the year, but... You know, compared to what its legacy is now, you wouldn't assume that. Um, in terms of movies that opened with and, and played alongside, you got Airplane, Prom Night, The Blue Lagoon, and Dress to Kill. I only know of Airplane from that list, I think. Do you? Uh, I've seen Airplane. I've seen Dress to Kill. I feel like I've seen Prom Night a long time ago, but probably on VHS and not, it, years ago. So uh, Dress to Kill is a pretty solid movie. That's Brian De Palma, so... Yeah. Um, Caddyshack was initially a critical flop. I remember Robert Roger Ebert criticized it pretty accurately for what it was as a disjointed, unfocused mess. Uh, but now, you know, obviously since we're doing the show, it's popular. <laughs> um, I don't know how, but uh, and Rodney Dangerfield had a giant career that came out of this in the 1980s as like uh, as like a crazy dad or, or whatever you want to have it when he really looks like a grandpa. <laughs> um, but <laughs> this movie is, uh, I feel like if you're a big cinephile, you know Caddyshack. Famous poster, famous actors, famous comedy. Yeah, the poster might be better than the movie. It's got a great poster. I'm going to just spit on my water. <laughs> How many, like, I want to make a list of, like, the movies where it's like, better poster than film. Oh, God, that would be so long. <laughs> that could be a separate segment of the podcast all into itself. <laughs> Go ahead and put all the Transformers in there. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Texas Chainsaw question mark? I don't know.
Maybe. Uh, um, Josh, I have a question for you. Oh, another one. Yeah, I always got questions for you, Dad. Do you think that this gopher was entirely in Carl's head? I think this is one of the dumbest things you've ever asked me. <laughs> Let me present my argument. Okay, go ahead. Let me present my argument. Judge Smales never sees the gopher. He only sees the flag go down the hole. You know how he yells to the other groundskeeper, McKinty or McGlintlock or whatever, about the gopher? I don't know how to say his name, dude. I'm too, I'm too coarse lattes deep, too. This is going to be Lou? the real you mean show. Lou? No, the other groundskeeper. Oh, 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 whatever. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. He never sees it either. The gopher breaks the fourth wall and dances twice, once at the beginning, once at the end. Never see the gopher when Carl takes the shot. <laughs> Which the audience could see your reaction, right? The stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> what a stupid fucking thing to be like. <laughs> hey, I know. Let's talk about this, this shitty movie first of all. <laughs> and let's try and think if there's like a deeper philosophical pull here of like, what's the gopher in Carl's head? No. <laughs> Fucking, fucking Lou goes to Bill Murray in the first 10 minutes of the movie and goes, there's a groundhog tearing up the thing. Can you kill it? But so nobody sees Lou it besides Carl. How are you? He lives in the ground. Like, he's not going to come up and actually fucking dance for the... Like, well, he does come up and dance for the audience. <laughs> well, that's because it's the only way you can show he actually exists, but otherwise it's just like the fucking the shark from Jaws where it's just like, where is he? I'm crying right now. Like, I... <laughs> Who, 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 why? Who puts more thought into this movie other than like this was funny? Uh, who, why? Why are people trying to intellectualize this this film? It's it's not good. <sighs> oh my god. Okay, I think we got we got our answer. You uh, think that the car the gopher was all in Carl's head? Nice. <laughs> I don't. God damn it. I, we talked about this, but has there ever been a character that's captured the Shaw mentality of I am not good at this, and therefore be miserable every second I have to play it more than Spaulding's males? <laughs> for, for Sp- people who haven't seen the movie Spalding Smales could be casted as both of our fathers <laughs> um, for people who haven't seen the movie Spalding is in the background of this is what sparked it is there's a scene where Judge Smales is walking down like the, the greenery and Spalding's trying to hit the ball and he keeps hitting it into the grass and just missing it he just goes like fart double fart fuck shit and yeah. I was like that is totally like I've been in, I've been doing physical activities or like anything where eventually I'm like, I can't do this. And I throw a controller across the room and I'm like, I'm done. I can't do it. I can't, I'm never playing this again. I love in that scene. Like I've never seen somebody get hit in the nuts. Like Smales does and hop around. Like they stepped on hot coals. Like that's not usually reaction to getting hit in the nuts. It's like a double over in pain. And like, maybe he's probably going to get sick. Like it's never like, Ooh, ow, 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 ow. Like hopping around. Oh, nimbly bimbly, just like so ridiculous. Here's my theory on that. I think Judge Mills is so old, there's nothing left in those, you know, testes. So when he got hit, it was just like a little like flick, you know, instead of like an actual like, you know, we're very young men. When you get hit there, it's like, wow, there's a lot of storage in there. You just, you just tap. <laughs> you just, um, but, Judge... <laughs> but Judge Mills probably. Like, and he's like, ooh, ah, ooh, that hurt, ooh, ah. I don't know, man. I don't think that pain ever goes away throughout the course of your life, but I could be wrong. I don't want to find out. <laughs> I'll tap my granddad to find out for the show. That's how dedicated oh I am for this. <laughs> That's a level of research that goes into the Road Dogs podcast. 
So we've probably alluded to it enough, but I want to talk about Carl and how he's definitely murdered people in his career, in his life. <sighs> um, I, we went from one stupid question to another. I'm going to need to open up a beer for this. Hold on one second. <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, I'm, I'll, all right, I'm making my case here. I'll just TED Talk. So <laughs> I guess it's a new weekly thing. Our first scene of Carl is he's watching these old women play golf. And he's like, oh, look at you go, Mrs. Garrison. Oh, you're really a tight little, oh, you got that. And he's making emotion like he's pleasuring himself. You have a really good Bill Murray. Like, that is a really solid Bill Murray. <laughs> but, and, and at first, it's like, well, that's just weird. And then he does it again. And it reminded me of Richard Ramirez, who would target older ladies in their houses and just beat them and kill them. And you combine the way he's talking about these women Carl is with the pleasure act he's simulating. And I was like, that's a serial killer. That that guy. And like his familiarity with explosives, number one. How do he like taunts the gopher? It's not just like, oh, I gotta find this gopher. He's like making clay little sculptures for it, put it in the hole. He's trying to like bait it and then like take great pleasure in his murder. I don't want to sound like an ableist here, but Carl is clearly not all there. Clearly. Um, and I, I, to me, he strikes me as like a Vietnam vet that saw a lot of bad stuff. And I think he brought that bad stuff home. And I, my, my point of contention is Carl, maybe not yet, but he's put some <laughs> bodies in a grave. I feel great about that. The way he's talking to Chevy about like, oh, yeah, this grass, you just put it in here. And uh, yeah, it's great. And like, oh, yeah, he's done it. I rest my case. Um. No, I thought the gopher question was pretty dumb, but I guess we did stoop a little bit lower because that is just ridiculous. There's absolutely no way. He's like a child. Like, there's no, like, murderous intent. And, like, yeah, maybe he's a perv, but there's no, like, animosity towards a woman. He just likes old women, which is actually more funny than it is creepy. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't get that vibe from Carl at that. all. I, I, you know what? We're going to have to agree to disagree, and that's the beauty of the Road Dogs podcast. Carl's not a murderer. Like... And what does his familiarity with explosions have to do with him killing people? Nothing. Like, come on. Oh, he just he just knows a lot of ways to kill people. Is you know my my like if I yeah, ran so into do Carl you. An alley, <laughs> well, yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> so does everyone, Josh? Um, like, it's not a mystery. <laughs> well, <laughs> I had a thought of that point, and it's a really good one you just made. Um. <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I want some friends of mine to watch this movie. I'm, I don't I don't know. I feel bad being like, can you I don't watch think this you movie? Do. So bad. Yeah. Um, this is not a movie I would recommend. We haven't done that once on this podcast. We haven't been like, yeah, watch this movie. I recommend you don't. I don't recommend Caddyshack. I think you should watch it if you're into like the history of film and the nostalgia purposes. But if you are looking to have a good time and laugh, I think you are going to be sorely disappointed. It's funny you say that because I was talking to Devin, who was on the show. And um, as I was watching it, and I was like, this movie sucks. Like, and I was like, I almost want you to watch it. Tell me if I'm crazy. He's like, well, I probably will to keep up with the show, but I'm not excited. And I was like, you shouldn't be. Oh, yeah. I don't think you should be either. <laughs> Longtime listener, friend of the show, Devin. Thanks for sticking with us, pal. I think, I think Carl's, uh, he scares me. I think he's off his rocker, but I think he's off his rocker because he's, mentally handicapped i don't think that he's murderous like i don't know i don't have to agree to disagree on this 
<laughs> you know, I don't agree with you that the gopher was all in Carl's head. You know, it's okay. I don't agree with you that I he was a murderer. I never said that. I never don't play this bit. Don't try and gaslight the audience. All right. Play it back. Play the tape back. Yeah, if the gopher is there, you must have quit. I don't know. <laughs> um, next question on the list. Bigger choke artist, Ty Weber, Dan Quinn Falcons. That's a Dan Quinn Falcons. We sure about that? That'll never be topped. I was going to say I, I disagree here. But the whole movie is like, wow, Ty Webb is so good. He doesn't even keep count. This mm-hmm. guy, he's hitting shots while he's doing the $6 million man theme, like behind his back, sideways, all these profiles. And then the day that there's $80,000 on the line, he needs to win. If Carl explodes the whole golf course, is the only way Ty Webb wins against two geriatric old men. So I don't want to. So like, I'm just saying, Ty Webb can't be that good at golf. If it's like, hey man, it's nut cutting time, and Ty Webb's like, well, it all hinges on if Carl actually blows up the golf course. You know, I is almost a Anthony Bennett or a or maybe <laughs> or maybe a Gray Godin because he does close his hand in the door, so he has an injury, and we didn't get to see the full potential. Uh, but like, a lot of sizzle, no steak with Ty Webb. You know, great on the practice. On the practice course, great when it doesn't matter, but when you need to get that bucket or you need somebody to hit that long putt, you know, we're, we're reverting you know, to a 22-year-old caddy. So <laughs> an explosion made by a man. They give a real generous countdown from the time that that explosion happens and the ball falls into the hole. <laughs> I feel like the game is over at that point. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's done. I just can't fucking believe we're talking about this movie. <laughs> I just can't believe what you've done to us. I'm sorry. I just also wanted to say about Ty Webb. Like, I thought this movie, if it was going to be smart. So this is just a great example of how dumb this movie is. Is when they introduce the blindfold thing five minutes in. I'm like, oh, that's going to come back around. You know, because that's what a good script writer does. Is he introduce little threads in the beginning, weaves them through at the end. No. Gone. No. No, it's just like, yeah, that was just there for a funny little joke about how he can't see and you need to stop talking to him. It's like, cool, that's a, that's a bad script. I think that's in the four-hour cut, Josh. I think they come back to it in oh, that one. Oh, okay, that's the, the, the Ramus cut. We're gonna yeah, the director's the Ramus cut. cut. <laughs> Get Zack Snyder on the campaign. And this brings us to your, your new baby here, the Colonel Tom Parker Award for Oddest Acting Decision. This movie has a plethora of options, um, but this week you went with Maggie's accent and Bill Murray's accent. Are we calling Bill well, Murray's speech pattern an accent? I don't know. Okay, his impression or whatever he's doing with his voice. It's just like, I guess it fits the character, so it's fine. But it's just so distracting at some point. I mean, if you've got more candidates, throw them in here. Um, but I oh, want to say for Maggie why she's my pick. That chick's American. They're yes. having her go out of her way to do a yes. terrible Irish Baroque accent. And it's so unnecessary and so uncalled for. It's just like, lady, you, you could just be a normal person. Like, <laughs> she's like, I don't, I don't want to go. Why and are you closing like, your eyes while you do the accents? I'm really getting the character, you know? <laughs> but I, I just, I think it's got to be her. It's just like, come on. I, I don't know who told her to do it, but they should get fired. It's 100% her, dude. We just talked about it. She goes in between Irish, Jamaican patois, and, like, American all in one scene. Yeah, I don't understand that choice. Like, it would make sense if this was a golf course in Dublin, maybe. Sure, I would get it. But we're supposed to be in Illinois or Wisconsin or whatever. Like, 
You know, that's the great part of the 80s, though, is like you could just have a character that sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger's name is like John Smith. And yeah. it's like, no, nah, that guy's Austrian. There's <laughs> like, yeah. no, 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 American. It's almost the same thing as when I, it, it makes me think of like when American actors try to do a South African accent or like an English accent. And you're just like, why? Why was this the choice? Or, uh, you know, or an American guy doing an Austrian voice of like, there's some who make me to the vanilla this year's daughter. The man that this golden statue was named after. It goes to you, Maggie. Congratulations. Yep. Yep. Gosh, this is your second TED Talk of the day right here. You've got a lot going. For somebody who hates this movie, you wrote about a page and a half. Let's hear it, bud. It's not even a joke. It's not a joke. I wrote a whole page and a half. Okay. So a decade ago, there was a video about how Daniel LaRusso from The Karate Kid actually bullied Johnny Lawrence, not the other way around. Have you seen this video? Hmm? Okay. So, so people know. That video pseudo-launched the series Cobra Cry. I'm not about to say what I'm arguing here. It's going to watch a TV series called Bushwood, which stars an older <laughs> Ted Knight trying to redeem for the sins of his past. Because Ted Knight's been dead since 1986. It's not <laughs> happening. But I do think that although Judge Smales is a crotchety racist and total a-hole, both of which we'll get into later, he's the victim of this movie, Nick. I, I don't have an argument against it. I don't. I, I Can I be honest with you? I, I read yeah. this before the show because I saw you un... Well, I saw you un, like... You made it not invisible anymore. So I, wanted to, I didn't want to go in completely blind. So <laughs> I did read it. And I, I you're not wrong. I, I don't have an argument okay. to present the other way. So continue to, to just persuade the audience and I. Yeah, so for starters, audience, Judge Mills has a good life when we meet him in this movie. You know, he's wealthy. He's got a niece that he loves. You know, maybe it's not a two-way street, but he's like, yo, I like Lacey. You know, he's got a grandson <laughs> he wants to mold into a good person. He's a privileged member of a golf club. However, this is just a week, I think, the movie. Or it's the summer, whatever it is. It's really not clear. Yeah, a loud, abrasive, annoying asshole enters a club. He booms music on the golf course, insults Smales, and then jokes that Smales' wife could make $14 if she, like, sucked his dick. This is Al Servic, by the way, the lovable goofball. Lovable um, goofball, name, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> this name's Loudmouth that tries to flex on Schmales, but in the process destroys his boat that he just bought. Repairs cost $20,000 in 1979 money, but at today's money, it's $81,000. I love that you adjusted for inflation. That's beautiful. I did it twice. Uh, Judge Smales then finds out that his beloved niece sleeps around with a 30-year-old man and an 18-year-old boy, which in and of itself is not a problem. The road dogs say, you can love his love no matter what, as long as you're of age. The problem is... And consent is given. That too. The problem is, Lacey sleeps with Danny and Judge Smales' bed. You got 18-year-old sperm in his bed. Disrespect. It's it's awful. So now Judge Smales has to probably wash the sheets or maybe get a whole new set of sheets, which is going to cost him some money. That's not cheap. You know, Those or just get sheets. a whole new bed. That's right. Later in the week, despite what Danny just... Danny just came on his sheets. Judge Smales <laughs> is still like, Danny, here's a scholarship. You're a good egg, I think, deep down. And I want you to make a change. I only ask that you be my caddy. And Danny's like, sure. But then what happens to Judge Smales? Danny turns on him. Sides with Ty. Ty then tells Schmale that his father, who, who Schmale was friends with, hated him all of his life, even though they were like war buddies. 
Finally, Schmell wins the golf match and stands to make $80,000. He earned fair and square. He, he outplayed these goons, right? But because of Carl's explosion, he has to pay these cheaters, backstabbers, and braggarts that money, which in all likelihood will bankrupt Judge Schmales. Because when you adjust $80,000 for inflation, it comes up <laughs> to $329,359.23. Okay, that's a lot. That, that ain't cheap. That ain't chump change. And, and if, <laughs> even if you're a judge, that's a that's a lot. And if Judge Smale refuses to do that, by the way, Al Servick, again, the lovable cool guy, is going to send his mob associates to beat him up and maybe just maybe murder him. And the golf course that Judge Smales loved is now blown up and ruined. I say justice for Justice Smales. This is this is a crime. Anyone who's like. George Mills is a real asshole. You're not wrong. But that man got done dirty so badly by these characters. And if you don't walk away being like, man, he got the run of the deal, you're a dick. Beautiful, poetic, virtuistic, and true. I respect your take. Uh, The only thing I will say and push back against is um, I'm not sure that all of this is not deserved. By, uh, upon Justice Mails. And the other thing I will say is he's just a representation. He's a figurehead for the system. He, he's, he's a cry against everything of the 80s, of the rich snobs. It's the, jo- it's the slobs versus the snobs kind of thing, right? It's like... Al Cervic, but if Al Cervic was just, like, not a dick. Al Cervic is, is rich, <laughs> he's old, he's white. He, he's going to maybe buy the golf course and make it condos. He's a wealthy landowner. And he's supposed to be the hero? Are you shitting me? No, I I, I think I, I dislike Rodney Dangerfield's character the most out of anyone in this movie. Okay, good. Good. I mean, that's that's all I wanted to hear, you know? And um, you talked about Judge Schmales being an asshole, which I think is a good transition to, like, the more serious stuff about this movie, if there is any. Um, yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about the toxicity and the jokes within it, but I think there's an actually great example that maybe you could argue gives this movie a little more weight where Judge Schmiel says to, um, I think someone, he says, have you heard the joke about the Jew, the Catholic, and the colored boy who went to heaven? And the storyteller and his audience member laugh. And that's tough. That's very problematic to begin with. <laughs> right. Um, because colored boy is not okay. You're inherently implying that, like, you're uncolored, despite the fact the only difference is your skin, you know, melanin is different. So right. that's fucked up. Um, but getting to the weight of this, Judge Smales is the one telling this joke. A representative of the state, the person laughing at it is a priest, a representative of the church. Who also so, doesn't believe in God. The, yeah, by the end of the movie. Um, so yeah, this is a very dumb, stupid movie. But I did think the point of having and showing the casual racism and the older generations, not only just like in general, but in places of power, was, I don't want to say poignant, but it was like, hey... I know that was intentional, but good pull. I, I read that more than I think maybe they did at the time as a more cynical person. Yeah. And also at that point, they probably thought that was funny. Like that was their only way to kind of like get back at somebody like that was to make a snarky, stupid joke like that. But yeah, I kind yeah. of noticed that too and felt the same way. Like that, that line of like, just like you said, in the line with the bishop at the end saying there is no God, like those were intentional. There was a reason behind that. And I feel like that was Kenny writing that. I feel like that was Doug Kenny. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, there is just more like, I want to shout out some good stuff here. The poop scene in the pool, the way it's edited with the Jaws music, 
It's pretty funny. Made me chuckle. Funny. It's a good SNL bit. Like that. That feels like an SNL bit. Yeah. Only thing I don't like about that scene is like, just goes back to what we were saying about the toxic part about this movie. Is like, there's a couple cuts where there's just a girl naked with no top on for no reason. Like she's just on a guy's shoulder with her boobs out, and I feel like that was like Peter's just being like, "Yeah, we need somebody with their tits out in the shot. Come on, take off that top." Like it just it it feels wrong. Like it doesn't feel like it belongs in there, and there's like such a variance of ages in that pool that it's just it feels pervy and inappropriate on so many levels i don't know and like i'm sounding like an old man like get off my lawn like but it just knowing the backstory of this movie i found that part of that scene weird but that part is funny and then carl takes a bite of it but then it has like like mrs smales faints and it's just so stupid it's like and then it reverts right back to that like dumb over the top like so on the head humor of this time period that it just is so unrelatable now it's all about subtlety now i feel with comedy and also, does no one look at that and go like, "Well, that's not the shit." Like, like I know the caricature of like a turd. I can't believe I'm going to talk about this. The caricature of a turd is very like, you know, that very like cylindrical sort of thing. Yeah. But not all turds are created equal, you know. <laughs> it's true. The likelihood that, that you're going to get a nice log like that is so rare. So for everyone to freak out, like, yeah, like just look at it. You're, you're going to see it's not poop. Get out of here. Right. Yeah. Little, little over the top. Um. This is probably the watermark era of comedy um, as far as like commercial success and critical prestige. You know, you think about Airplane, Police Academy, Caddyshack, National Lampoon, Blues Brothers. All those come out in the span of like five years. Pretty successful commercially and like hold a pretty, pretty strong hold of, of, in the pop culture stratosphere, which is weird to me. I've also never understood how all of these guys are still so famous. Like, Bill Murray had a movie that came out last year that was directed by Sofia Coppola. Like, these guys still work and are famous for so long. Um, well, but then you have, dead, yeah. <laughs> um, and then you kind of have, like, more prestigious like comedies like Moonstruck, Terms of Endearment, When Harry Met Sally, which your dad shouted out as one of his uh, favorite comedies. We'll leave that be. We've got Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Big, etc. Um, and then we have this this template set up for us for some of the Marvel stuff I feel like we see nowadays in the genre mashing of comedy, you know, can anything be a straight comedy anymore? It's very rare. It's very rare that studios take a chance, chance on comedies. Um, but you look at things like Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, Bill and Ted, Framed Roger Rabbit, etc. Um, this constant, quote-unquote, humor injection into movies. Uh, I wanted to ask you, why do you think comedy was such a prevalent and bankable genre back then? Was it just some new ideas that hadn't been explored at the time as far as, like, you know, maybe the escapism of something of big or, um, you know, Caddyshack of the revenge against the system or police academy where like the slobs, you know, become the, the heroes. Like, was this just a form of escapism for the world at the time, which can be said for any movie that comes out in any decade? Is this the death of the new Hollywood movie and studios not wanting to take the chance on independent cinema and more, um, of two stories or is it just cocaine? <laughs> I think it's a lot of the things that you mentioned where I think goofiness is a lot easier to sell than straight, like complicated jokes that are really like interwoven into the dialogue and really comp not complex, but like a very tight structured joke that isn't just like, here's the punchline of two seconds or like, whoa, he fell, right. you know, like Kevin Hart movies we have like five of them a year at this point and not one of them are all those that clever. It's more just like Kevin Hart's small. 
Right. Oh, Kevin Hart's and Mark Wahlberg with this one? Oh, yeah, we'll watch that one. Oh, this one was with The Rock? Yeah, we'll watch that one, too. So I do think studios are reluctant just because they've seen what works, you know, not just like critically, but culturally. And I think every studio wants a chunk of pie. And if you're seeing the chunk of pie being generated a certain way, you're going to keep going for it. You know, you're going to use the same exact recipes, do whatever it takes to get your little piece. So I think that's largely it. You know, I also think those movies are so influential that the audience who then go on to make movies don't really have a ton of interest in trying anything else. I think that's the key thing, right? That you just hit on right there is complacency is why take a chance when this will be bankable and we can make four of them, especially back then. I mean, how many police academies are there? I think there's like eight and like how, and I know that there's multiple airplanes. Like we can, we can make these pretty cheaply. They're all going to make money. You just need to put one big face in the front of it. Like, yeah, I think that complacency is the real killer here. I mean, but then again, I really like planes, trains, and automobiles. I like big. Like, some of those movies did have things to say back then. I don't think that all of this work is hollow. Um, but I do have a hard time when I read things about this, respecting work made without ethics, and on top of it, I think the movie kind of stinks. So it's it makes it a two twofold thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you're basically saying there. And it's just... um. Thank you. I love that. It doesn't happen often. <laughs> it's just a shame that like there's only one sort of thing that gets kind of made nowadays in this kind of genre that it is so insular and I don't know, it's depressing. I mean, I hate to like it feels like every show we do is like really normal and like funny and then we get to like this sort of stuff and it's just like, man, Hollywood's fucking doomed. Yeah, and <laughs> And also, like, I feel like we're becoming, I don't know what the right right way to use it, this word would be, but like almost like a profit of it, right? Like if we keep speaking about it and we keep saying that's the only movies we're going to get, well, that's what's going to eventually happen. So I, I don't want to sit here and uh, like speak so poorly of like the Netflix movies or the, or the Marvel movies and stuff like that. But like, I think there does need to be some kind of like, we can't saturate the market like so heavily with all of those things. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it's tough. Yeah. I think that we've gone pretty deep and heavy on this movie. Got into some pretty deep weeds right there and, and not fun conversation. Let's lighten up the mood for the end of the podcast here. Let's do something that everybody loves. Decade Decider. I'm going to be starting off with Bill Murray. Um, just a rundown real quick of how this works for people who are turning in for their, tuning in for their first episode. We take three to four people from the film that we talk about every single week break down their work into probably three or four decades of category, depending on how long they've been in the biz. And then at the end, we both pick a decade that we think is their best work. So we're going to start off with Bill Murray here. First thing Bill Murray's famous for is SNL, 1976-1981. Uh, Josh, what's your relationship with SNL? I did want to ask you about this. Um, in terms of like the classic stuff, or like today, or, or like in general? Just in general. I'm of the age where there's so much TV and there's so many options that mm-hmm. SNL for me wasn't like an institution. You know, I think if you're growing up in the 80s, there's not a lot to do on a Saturday night if you're not going outside your house. And if mm-hmm. you are, you know, <laughs> you're probably doing coke. So for me, it's just been like, I know of it. I've seen some skits. I've seen the cowbell stuff. 
I've probably referenced it more than I've referenced, you know, out of context, not knowing it's actually SNL, but like nowadays I don't really care about it. I, th- I think you should leave is a better SNL to me. It's kind of what tickles me more. Maybe that's just my personal sense of humor, but mm-hmm. I could rail off about four. I think you should leave skits before I could rail off like 10 SNL ones. I really like. Yeah. I don't really have a strong relationship with it either. Whether it be the classics, whether it be the new generation, like it was never kind of like these movies. It was just not really a thing in my house to like, watch old eddie murphy snl or like belushi or chase or murray like yeah just not a show that i really have any strong connection with but like obviously respect longevity and you know there's been some absolute hall of fame 101s to pass through that set so uh then we go into the 70s with bill murray kind of getting more film roles this is where i feel like he starts to kind of take off a little bit as far as commercial appeal maybe not the best work um but definitely like a time period where he was a bankable dude making dough so we start with Meatballs, 1979. That makes 70 mil right off the gate. Caddyshack, we talked about to death here, made 60 mil out of the gate. Then we finally get to some critical acclaim, Stripes. I kind of want to talk about this a little bit. Uh, this made 85.3. This is another one of those movies that is just an absolute blind spot to me. But much like Caddyshack, people tell me that I need to see it. People have quoted it to me. I have probably quoted it accidentally, like not knowing and... Yeah, never seen a frame of this movie. <laughs> I don't know about you. Dangerous though, because now if you watch it, you're like, "This sucks too." You'll be like, right. "You'll be just be a hater." Yeah, and I don't want to be that guy. Then we go to Ghostbusters. This is just bonkers. Two hundred ninety-five point two million in nineteen eighty-four. I don't know. Josh is our inflation expert over here. You do the math on that, Josh. Get back to us next week. But that's just buku bucks. Times three. <laughs> well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, almost a, that would be almost a billion dollars then. That's pretty good. We go to 1986 with Little Shop of Horrors, 39 million. Uh, Scrooge, 1988. I have seen this. This is a good movie. I don't know if you have Josh, but I like that movie. I'm looking through a lot of the lists just to like speed things up a little bit, and I really haven't seen almost anything on this list besides like the later Bill Murray. You know, like we kind of talked at the start of the show, our parents weren't ever just like, "Hey, put on some classics." It was more just like. I remember watching the movie Four Brothers at like age seven. And that that was kind of my household, not like Yeah. Oh, funny times. Yeah. Oh, Constantine's on. Nice. (laughs) Uh I'm gonna skip a couple of these. Groundhog Day, cool. Never seen it. Ed Wood. That's actually one I would like to talk about at some point on this podcast. But this movie's important for the change of, of Bill Murray right here. Uh Rushmore, 1998. This is when he starts hooking up with Wes Anderson. Um, becoming kind of one of his major players in his movies. This is where I think that the craft of acting for Bill Murray becomes something else than just being the funny guy who has an odd like speech pattern or whatever. Like I, th- I, I don't know if it was working with an auteur in the strongest word, like Wes Anderson, that kind of brought that out. But you see a decided turn in a lot of the projects that he picks going forward. I mean, the Lost in Translation is such a home run. I, did he get noms for that? I don't know, but he should have. That movie's great. That That's my number one for him. I think there is this great turn of, like, you know, everyone talks about, like, oh, Robin Williams, such a versatile actor, but Bill Murray's up there in the conversation. I don't think he has as much pedigree good or skill as Williams did in his prime. But, like, Bill Murray's not a slouch when it comes to dramatic roles, and, like, it's increasingly apparent starting in this kind of decade in general 
where the comedic actors do start veering into these more dramatic roles. Um, his, work nice in te- his work in Tenenbaums, Rushmore, and Lost in Translation is a beautiful representation of, like, depression and, like, existential grief. Like, he's doing a lot of stuff in those movies. And those aren't, like, dialogue-heavy, either. I mean, the point of Lost in Translation is isolation. That whole movie is about that. So, I don't know. I, I think that he might be kind of one of the unsung actors of, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, so we just talked about a couple of those really quickly. He goes and does Royal Tenenbaums with Wes Anderson again, then Lost in Translation, which is just a masterpiece. Um, I do hope to talk about that at some point on this podcast. Then we got two bangers back to back with Wes Anderson, uh, Steve Zazu, which I just watched for the first time recently. What about you, Josh? You seen that? No, I haven't. We got to get you up on Wes Anderson a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've tried, you know, it's just not always for me. I understand. We can get off to that off. We can get into that off mic. Uh, and then we're going to skip ahead to the 2010s. We've got Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest, Isle of Dogs. It's really a lot of Wes Anderson and then no one else. Like there's St. Vincent in here in 2014. Um, I know he did another movie with Sofia Coppola, who we op- also worked on Lost in Translation with. Doesn't seem like he's really selecting a lot of other people. And I know that you had mentioned earlier that he might be the better person. Uh, as of this year and some of the things that have come out, that might not be true. So uh, as a guy who is notoriously prickly and difficult to work with at times, I wonder if that has something to do with the the, de- the decrease in roles. Yeah, I'll pick the 80s. And speaking of pricks, let's talk about Chevy Chase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and take the 2000s. Okay, good. Good for you, man. I mean, you like that. You know, you want that grind. Yeah, I, I, I like a lot of those movies, yeah. I, I'm going to take that. Um, so for Chevy Chase, SNL, Foul Play, 1978, Caddyshack, obviously launches him into the, the stratosphere. You get the National Lampoon's Vacation franchise with the European Vacation of Christmas Vacations of the 80s. You get the French franchise, which is finally back with John Hamm. Not a coincidence. Um... And and that's it, that's it for Chevy. <laughs> Don't forget Three Amigos. I, I oh, excuse me. Um, I looked through the Rotten Tomato scores. I looked through the IMDb for Chevy Chase. Not much. Not much worth writing home about from the '90s, 2000s, 2010s. It's really bad. I mean, outside of Community, which she then gets fired for for being an asshole. I think that almost all of these are unwatchable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, moving on from Chevy Chase, I will the 80s. Take, yeah, take the <laughs> 80s. You put Harold Ramis on here. I just want to hit Rodney Dangerfield before we go into him. Um, right, Rodney Dangerfield, think? Yeah, he's annoying. He's, I'll say it now. He's annoying as fuck, and I really don't like him. He's, he's just like, I think when we're, if we're going back to just Caddyshack and Germ, but what works for me isn't just like a guy who's like, I'm telling material you're completely devoid of the actual script or that's unrelated or thematically related or just like he's on his own island in this movie mm. and it doesn't work for me at all. You know, it's just it's just a mess. I want to I want to believe that his stand up is good. That's what I want to believe. I want to believe his stand up is good. Some of his movies are dated. This being one of them for sure, especially seeing as how it's one of his first acting roles like. I, I, but I just was so lost at what made this guy like he's an icon. Like I don't know, I, I don't know anything about a lot of the comedians from the '80s. I mean, you could show me the cover to 
I don't get no respect by Rodney Dangerfield and not put the name on it. I know exactly what album it is and who who recorded it. Like, it's just so amazing to me when somebody is so famous for a things that I've never heard just because I'm young and naive and stupid, and b something that doesn't feel good. Like, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't like make me laugh. I don't know. I just wanted to hit Rodney Dangerfield real quick before we went to Harold Ramis. Yeah. Um, so for Ramis, I'll just say this is like a little preface, you know, when you talk about, even though this isn't our cup of tea of the eighties comics, which is still weird why you chose this, but you know, whatever. Um, but when you look at the genre of the eighties comedy and what spins out of it and the auteurs that come from it, it's not really possible without Harold Ramis, you know, Doug Kenny certainly had a, had a large hand to play, but you know, when you look at the writers and directors and actors in these movies, Harold Ramis is, is up there with all of them, you know, stripes, mm-hmm. he writes, National Lampoon's Vacation, he directs. Ghostbusters, he's an actor and writer. Groundhog Day, he's a director, actor, writer, producer. I mean, th- those are four huge movies that changed the whole culture that just yeah. flat out don't happen without Harold Ramis. I think the, the 2010s kind of picks, I mean, or the 2000s picks that you have here with Knocked Up and Walk Hard, I think that's Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen, etc. Jonah Hill realizing like how much they owe to this guy and kind of like throwing him a bone and being like, you know, we wouldn't be here without this person. And as much as we don't like those movies, they probably mean a lot to those guys. Um, so yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting too, to see like kind of come full circle for him at the end of the decade. Yeah. Unfortunately we lost him, you know, far too soon. Um, but mm. it's, it's odd that we're all going to pick the same decade pretty much outside of like the 20, 2000 for Bill Murray, but it's the eighties for Ramis, you know, to be one of the biggest movie stars of the, not of the year, at least for 84 of, you know, Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, and not only to be that, but to be the writer of those movies is an incredible achievement. I don't know where the word we all are came from. It's it's just you and I, pal. But yeah, sure. William <laughs> setting in. We're, we're on two hours of Caddyshack, so. Yeah, okay, Carl. Maybe we should wrap this before you start killing people. Oh, Nick, you're really, you're really polishing that mic there really good. Oh, yeah, you're getting it. Josh, tell us what your pick is next week in the voice of Carl Spackler. Oh, it's adaptation by uh, Nicholas Cage and the uh, Spike Spike Jones and uh, Meryl Streep. It sounds a lot like um, Swedish Chef. I just noticed of like first borscht and you put this in the guys. Join us next week as we discuss 2002's adaptation. Road Dogs out. Boom.